Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we discuss today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Tony Uphoff, CEO of Thomas, a 100-year-old-plus media company that under Tony's direction has been moving into data and information about what's going on across a lot of industries. Tony, thanks very much for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob, thanks for having us on again. Always enjoy our conversations. Well, it's great. And Tony, uh, I, you know, it's important. I just want to note up front to everybody that uh, Tony has joined our ranks of the digital all-stars. So the monthly series we'll be doing with Tony is called Uphoff on Industry, because again, with the company of which Tony's CEO, Thomas, they've got an incredible set of services that help analyze what's going on across these industries, collecting data from buyers and sellers. Really interesting. So Tony, tell us a little bit more about that, please. And also, it sounds like you've had some uh, interesting things going on these days. Have we ever? Yeah. So as a bit of background, so this is our 121st year in business, which is really just remarkable on every level. Obviously, it started as a, um, a print-based directory business that connected buyers and sellers in and around custom manufacturing and products and services in the industrial and manufacturing markets. Today, we're a modern data platform company. And what that basically means is every two seconds, an engineer or a procurement professional, or what's called an MRO, people running factory floors, are selecting or sourcing a product or a supplier on ThomasNet. Every, every second, a, an engineer or architect downloads one of our CAD or building information management files. All of that collective data that's now in multiple petabytes gives us a remarkable ongoing window into the industrial economy. So a lot of the things that Bob, you and I have talked about before, but I hope to bring um, uh, to share with, with your, uh, your listeners, um, it, it really just, we just have a, a rather unique perspective on some of the trends that are happening in the industry. Sharing this data and to your, your, uh, your lead in there, we were recently asked to uh, chair a roundtable on trends in U.S. manufacturing at the White House. And so we were asked by the Department of Commerce, and we got a chance to lead a, a roundtable on four major trends in U.S. manufacturing with senior administrative officials in the Small Business Administration, in the Department of Commerce, and then also uh, chief legislative aides for congressional districts that, are, that have heavy manufacturing areas. Frankly, that could be every congressional district, but they happen to be uh, most of them based in the Northeast. Tony, uh, remarkable times here going on. And just if we touch a little bit on the Uphoff on industry segment that we were asking you to fill here. You know, you've been in the media business, you've been in a number of different cases here. Now you're moving up into the data, data platform business here and you're two and a half years at Thomas. So you've seen a lot of things coming and going, but there's something about the manufacturing sector, the industrial sector now, right? You mentioned it before we came on air here that it's something unlike anything you've ever seen. Tell us a little bit about what are those forces moving on here? Yeah, I, I think there are so many of them. I think, you know, the, the first one would be there, there's a remarkable level of misperception about U.S. manufacturing. And I, I think this has nothing to do about technology, but in a way it has everything to do about technology. So long been used as a political hockey puck. U.S. manufacturing has been misperceived for a good 50 or 60 years. The average American would think that the U.S. is declining. The U.S. is no longer manufacturing power. There's no jobs in U.S. manufacturing. Everything's been shipped offshore. 
And the reality is it's literally 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So U.S. manufacturing has had sustained growth for 118 quarters. Uh, employment levels are at 1949 levels. There were 248,000 new jobs created just in 2018. There's actually a skills shortage, meaning we need more skilled people in the industry. So one of the things the White House wanted to talk about, and we think is so fascinating about this industry, is there's this kind of bizarre perception reality. A lot of reasons for that. I'll let that sit for now. But at, at, if you think about what has happened over the last 50 years, U.S. manufacturers have figured out how to be very competitive on the global stage. They've done that through the adoption of advanced technology, primarily through automation, robotics, factory processes. And that has been absolutely spectacular. We're seeing reshoring where U.S. companies are bringing manufacturing back to U.S. shores. We're actually seeing now U.S. companies starting to take share of the international market, meaning with global companies that are non-U.S. companies that are looking to establish manufacturing here in the U.S. So, so all good, as they say, in that regard. However, that's raised the ultimate irony because what is now starting to happen is there's a, a digital transformation, if you will, of the industrial sales, marketing, and supply chain process. So you remember the old game of whack-a-mole, Bob? Right? And just, to, just when you thought that you, know, you, would, you would divide the odds and you, know, you and I have, let's say we've, we've you know, replumbed the factory floor, we're in advanced automation and we're thinking, hey, this is great. We wake up one day and realize the industrial buyer is now 70% of the way through the purchase process before they engage with a sales rep. Uh-oh, boy, this is really happening at an alarming rate. So what's happening in this industry that I think makes it fascinating, it's bigger, more vibrant, more robust than, than anybody realizes. It got that way by advanced use of technology, but as many of your guests touch about this idea of the customer experience, the customer is going online to source products and services, and we're feeling a little bit of pressure in the industry as the average you know, American manufacturer, that's not their skill set. You know, they, they understand robotics, they understand automation on the factory floor. The idea that you as a customer might be using technology to source products or to learn or educate, and I've got to figure out how to find you through the use of similar technology. That, that's, a big, uh, that's a big from two shift, if you will, for the industry right now. Yeah, Tony, fascinating how you brought that up too about the, the customer experience and in a, a, a sector where in some ways that customer side of things could have been the most far removed, right? Hey, it's our job to design and build and deliver great stuff. You know, what happens over here, and I was thinking about this, uh, there's one of the largest energy companies in the UK uh, when they went from the deregulated or the regulated industry to deregulated, where they could not only produce the energy, but they were able to sell it to consumers. Yeah. They had to recreate their language, which rolled yep. back to, to how they thought about things and engaged because at this, you know, at the, when they were purely a generator of the energy, they referred to anything that got out of there when they'd sell to the giant distributors. They called those leakage points. So they began to refer to customers <laughs> as leakage points. That's the language yeah. they do. So you're talking about a whole new way for these companies to sort of, in some ways, replicate or move forward the incredible stuff they've done inside the factory and their supply chains then out on the other end toward the customers. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think in many cases, the companies that have, have uh, started that adoption you know, and, and it, it, if you look at a spectrum, it could be as simple as, 
having a website that's responsive and secure for gosh sakes, all the way through to more, more elaborate e-commerce solutions through distributors and those types of things. But what we're starting to see is that point of separation, and you and I have talked about this before, where the haves are moving much faster than the have-nots. If, if we haven't adopted this digital transformation of the sales and marketing and supply chain, we're not dying, we're not declining as of yet, but we're not growing. And those that have are growing at an astoundingly faster pace. And so we watch that very carefully. We have a vested interest in that. We wanna help everybody do that. But it's remarkable to see that move. I think the other thing implicit in your observation, Bob, too, which we find absolutely fascinating. I think when you go through technological cycles like this, where there's a level of, of let's call it disruption or market transition, you always assume that is the technology that causes the disruption. It isn't, it's customers. So in this case, the very simple thing I'm noting is in the, the tried and true, you know, old line industries of the industrial markets, the customer in this case, the B2B buyer has gone online. So if you're not online with that buyer, you're gonna get left behind. It's literally that straightforward. Yeah, so Tony, talk a little bit more about that as you see across some of the sectors that your company focuses on and deals with, right? Because you know, in some ways, the term digital transformation, it's been beaten to death a little bit, the term, yep. but the concept is 100% value, uh, completely legitimate. So in, in your business, right, we hear sometimes about digital industrial, what's the right way that you try to frame the way these companies should be thinking about themselves and how they move more fully into the digital business world? Yeah, yeah, it's funny, Bob. I, I oftentimes, when I talk with groups about this, as I look at this as front office and back office, if you and I ran a factory, the back office is the factory floor itself. The front office is all the things that we do that actually touch a customer, right? So historically, right, you've got your annual trade show, you've got some form of, you know, sort of traditional simplistic marketing that you've probably done, you've got a Rolodex, you're running a 100 to $200 million manufacturing business, you're doing business with Boeing and Tesla, and, you know, several other major companies, but you've had those contracts in, pay, in place for quite a while. Now, suddenly, you've got the millennial generation that's in the workforce at the same level the baby boom generation is in there, they're digital natives. The baby boom generation have become digital natives in many regards. So what's happening is as that customer moves online very quickly, a lot of um, traditional manufacturers, let me, let me call them, have not automated that front office. And again, it could be as simple as having a website that allows the customer to have a secure transaction. If you were an engineer at any of those companies that I mentioned, you're not gonna download something and put your name and information in there if the website's not secure. Now that's a given for many of us who've been in the digital arena for a long time. We wouldn't even think twice about that. If that's not the primary way though you communicate with customers, that seems really new to you. And I know it seems somewhat pedantic that, that something that simple would be um, a barrier, but, it, but it's, a, it's a real challenge. So when we talk digital transformation, we're not just talking about really super advanced technology. Oftentimes, it's just the front office ways we communicate with customers. Another thing that we're seeing is if you look between the combination of, say, data privacy, but also data as a, as a knowledge guide, um, buyers or potential buyers are telling us with their digital footprints when and how to engage with them. So the day of the unsolicited email, the day of the cold call, the day of the 
you know, I'm just going to bludgeon you and you may or may not be interested in, in what my product or service about are going away. And in many cases, they're going away legally, i.e., you know, it, we're, we're reg legislating out the ability to do that. But also, I think what a lot of companies are now realizing is I look out of touch if I come out of nowhere to solicit feedback or try to engage with you. That's another example of digital transformation. Those, that use of data to steer when I might engage with Bob Evans as a prospective buyer. Where might Bob be in a, say, in a buying process so that when I engage with him, it's not a cold call, it's a warm call. He's likely gonna get on the phone with me and or engage with me because I can see where he is in that process and I can add value. And again, that's the use of data. We might take that for granted in some industries like business technology that you and I grew up in, where the use of these tools is a decade probably or more, right? In the industrial markets, they've been a lagging industry in terms of digital technology in this regard as it connects with customers. So it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a new phenomenon, actually. Yeah, so Tony, as you described that, I want to ask a little bit about the shifting, changes, uh, shifting dimensions here in some ways, so the, the business model, the revenue model in, in industry. But let me come back to something you just mentioned there about front office and back office. Do you see that model as being you know, current? Is it the latest thing of what's going on? Because we see in some cases those models being demolished in some way. The front office, back office are uniting almost like it becomes the customer office. Where do you see that, that yeah. level of maturity or movement across industry? I think that'll ultimately happen in industry. And I think very similar to what we've seen before in other markets where late adopting markets go straight to the latest generation. In other words, they don't go through 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, right? They just jump right to 5G. I think to a great extent, you're, you are starting to see industry do that. And I think you will see that accelerate as they kind of realize some of these definitions don't make sense anymore, front office to back office. It's a little like, um, you know, when I was at the White House and we were talking about, you know, skills gap, meaning it was all these jobs that were available in manufacturing. One of the questions from one of the legislative folks was, hey, are these white collar or blue collar jobs? And I said, that's no longer a relevant descriptor. These are new color jobs. You can't describe these by the simplistic ways we think of as, well, one's a manual labor job and one's this mysterious thing we call a management role or management job. But I think that um, your point is a really good one. I think there are some enabling technologies that could help accelerate this. So part of what's changing for industry is not just the way you interact with customers, it's also how you engage with a supply chain or how you participate as a part of a supply chain. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of manufacturing in this country, as it is in every country, is made up of small to medium-sized companies, 50 to a billion dollar companies, privately owned. You know, they could be multi-generation companies that, that produce a, a you know, really great series of products or services. But a lot of them have not historically been able to work with particularly large multinational companies or they've been reluctant to expand globally because the supply chain complexity just goes up exponentially. The enabling technology of blockchain in particular, as you well know, is now starting to create that digital ledger, which is opening up huge amounts of opportunity. And I think to your point, will that start to change the idea of front office, back office, at the end of the day, if you're embedded in somebody's supply chain, you know, whether it's front office or back office becomes completely and totally irrelevant. You're now in their supply chain. The point I'm making though, is I think these enabling technologies will allow for 
um, the participation in decentralized supply chains, which is, as you know, that's really complicated, particularly for smaller companies to participate in. But it's also, it seems, an essential part of the new world and in, in the, the industrial space, right? Which is companies uh, responding to consumer behavior, which is like, now I don't want what you put on the store shelf. I want something very specific to my customized needs. So there's greater, uh, whether you call it customization or personalization, right? more and more of these companies, whatever their size, has to be able to move lightning quickly to what the new demands are beyond their manufacturing partners, but almost like to the customer's customer. Well, and to your point, um, some of the larger, let's, I, I don't know if I can call these retailers anymore, but the, some of the larger brands, and I'll use two examples, Walmart that everybody knows, and, and, um, and then Amazon, you know, every year they're ratcheting up their supply chain terms. Speed, quality, flexibility. And, you know, a lot of what they're focused on is, total fulfillment and fulfillment within a fixed period of time. And if you can't match to that, they're gonna find someone that will. And so this idea of the, the decentralization of the supply chain, but also things like blockchain and others that will enable a smaller company to move faster, to be able to move with more accuracy, to forecast better, to be able to make it predictive when a shipment is gonna get there, how much of the order that will fulfill and be able to do that in real time. These are huge changes because before a smaller company would just say, you know what, I can't take the bet with Walmart. I, I, I'm not positive I can fulfill at the level that they need me to. Now you're starting to see the ability for that to happen, which is really remarkable. Well, Tony Ray, isn't there, there's some correlation here that that classic old uh, cartoon from the New Yorker, right? And it shows a dog typing at a keyboard from 25 years ago. And the dog looks over at his friend and he says, hey, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Yeah. But in these, <laughs> right, in, the, in the, the modern supply chains, you can be a participant there, whatever size your company happens to be. And it isn't determined so much by size, but is by have I made that move that you described earlier? Am I going to be the one who adopts the new way of thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if sticking with this idea of let's call it retail for lack of a better term, I, I think we need a new term to define what some of these, uh, these phenomenons are. Um, if you look at um, one of the biggest trends that we see happening in the industrial markets right now is um, food and food packaging sourcing is absolutely going sky high in demand. And you're thinking, that's kind of odd. Why would that be happening? There's nothing new about people eating. There's not all these new consumers that are suddenly consuming food. What the heck is going on? Well, the biggest shift is that major retailers and minor retailers, meaning smaller, are sourcing food products and services in their local markets, packaging them locally and selling them under their own brands. So the classic example, you're very familiar with the, the retailer Costco. Um, it has now been disclosed that Kirkland, which is a Costco brand, is a $37 billion a year brand in and of itself. So Warren Buffett came out recently with some of the challenges that his uh, Heinz Craft Company had. And he said, here's a hundred year old brand that has spent billions on advertising and is the same size as a brand that's 25 years old and has spent nothing on advertising. And so it's a, it's a fascinating, right? It's a fascinating dynamic, but it cuts to what you and I are talking about. Because again, there's nothing new about food or, or supplying food to a local market or even packaging of food. But now the technology and ability for us to source it locally, 
to get it packaged locally and to manage that supply chain in real time. That's now apparent. So someone like Costco can work with local growers, local you know, farms, local uh, areas, and they can make a living off this too, right? That is still relatively new. That's only in the last several years that we've been able to see that happen at the scale that, it, that it's currently happening. Tom, you know, you've been describing here some of these things in a couple of ways, but let me toss out a couple uh, specific points if you'd address those. One, a little bit about the competitive dynamics, right? If you were advising, you know, companies in the industrial sectors, where do they start to need to think more, put more of their muscle and time and energy behind as the competitive dynamics of the field change? Yeah. What would you tell them? Yeah, it's a great question, Bob. I think there's three, three areas that we spend a lot of time talking to companies about. And I know when I give talks out in the market, these are three areas that I tend to use the data to help them understand. The, the, in no rank order, but the first one that pops to mind is this idea of, you know, have you invested in the, the digital transformation of your sales and marketing? That, that's really important because if you're not doing that, your customer is finding sources and resources without you. If you're not participating in that dialogue, that's an investment in both the technology, but as importantly, the people and the best practices in and around that. So that's, that is something I definitely touch on. I think this idea of blockchain is still relatively new, but we talk a lot about that because I think it's going to continue to be um, a, 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 a a mechanism for leveling the playing field between large and small and, and also shrinking the, the globe. So enabling companies to participate. So we talk a lot about that. And then I think the third is this far broader concept, but something that's really accelerating, which is the phenomenon called Industry 4.0 which you and I have touched on this in our conversations before, Bob, but, you know, depending on whose descriptors you want to use, Industry 4.0 basically is the convergence of digital technologies like sensors, cloud computing, mobile applications with traditional industrial products running on top of the Internet of Things. So in essence, the planet's now wired. We can now hook up digital technologies at very cost-effective rates in embedded inside traditional industrial products, smart buildings, uh, smart cars, smart devices. You know, the average jet engine is sending more information back to the uh, manufacturer of the engine than it is to the pilots flying the plane. I mean, it really is remarkable what we're seeing today. And we're at the very beginning of that. So that's an area that we really recommend to our, our, uh, our customers and our, our constituencies pay attention to what's moving there because it's opening up massive amounts of new opportunity, new products, new services, whole new categories are being created. And it's a little buzzy, this idea of, you know, the fourth industrial wave, but it's quite real and it's starting to accelerate very, very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, that's uh, that's fascinating. And let, let me ask us, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wrap on this for this episode and jump into it a little more in a, a future conversation, but you know, you, you talk about traditional manufacturing companies and their efforts to move into the digital future. And I, I just think it's so wild that, you know, a company, a, a technology company, SAP, that for a long time has been, you know, tightly associated with traditional enterprise applications, manufacturing sector, financial stuff. So in some ways, the classic iconic old world or original world yeah. type of technology Sure. But with this acquisition they did six months or so ago of Qualtrics, yep. they're able to tie that back around to consumers. So 
your your urgency here, your message of urgency that you're pushing out to people that you know this this is not a game to sort of sit and wait and hope that things will return to normal. Um, I think it's so wild that SAP has now sort of reset the rules for technology companies serving the industrial world by saying we're going to help you be able to understand not just what's going on inside operationally, but in that world of the customer outside with experience. So. Um, I just wondered if you had some thoughts on that and how the software industry is aligning with the needs of industrial companies. Well, I think you have probably been somewhat of a pioneer in identifying what companies like SAP, Microsoft, and, and even Oracle are starting to do by looking at these massive vertical markets like uh, manufacturing. And, and I think Part of this is that misperception and the vibrancy of those markets that I touched on earlier, but part of this is the transformation that you and I are, are talking about here. I think your example is perfect because if you think about the way a lot of these businesses grew up, people beat a path to their door because they had unique capabilities. So all of their operating muscle, all of their intelligence, all the value creation was poured into automation and robotics and precision manufacturing and 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 they they didn't really i don't want to say they didn't have to worry about getting customers but customers found them well now what's happening is you know that that is changing radically so i think to your point whether it's sap or other companies that are helping industrial and manufacturing companies realize wait a minute I, this is a continuum here I've got to understand just as much about my prospective customer and my current customer and what their needs are than I do about advanced robotics and precision manufacturing, which if we had gone back even five years ago, Bob, would have been heresy. People would have looked at us like we were just kidding them or something, right? But I think that's a very real trend. I, I would argue, and I've, I've learned a lot from, from reading and listening to some of your coverage in that area. I think SAP made a bold bet but I think it was an actual visionary bet because I think they're ahead of a curve that's gonna be really obvious in the near future. I, it was less obvious when the deal went down, but boy, the more I look at that and the more I think about it, I, I think they saw a lot of what you and I are describing here and realized the market opportunity that they can, uh, they can take advantage of. Yeah, yeah. Tony, I have to tell you a story about um, uh, the, the two brothers who are the co-CEOs at Qualtrics. I saw the one give a presentation recently and he was describing a couple companies in the retail space. He said Kmart for years was surveying customers about customer experience and customer uh, satisfaction. He said, but the way they did the research, they only spoke to a very small set of people and they always tried to go after uh, customers who were buying less and less and less stuff from Kmart and so they felt, hey, we don't have any problem. Everything's going great when actually their core customers were buying less and less and less. And he contrasted that to Costco, you know, the, 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 the company you mentioned there. And he said, whereas people go into Costco, they want to buy one thing and they come out with that one thing, a lifetime supply of mayonnaise and a, you know, a jet ski. <laughs> and he said they are happier than, than could be. So um, what I think ultimately, we're, we're, it's slowly coming around from healthcare and other places, slowly those worlds of what goes on on the operational side and the customer experience side are coming together. So it's great to hear that you feel, even if the companies in the industrial sectors aren't there yet, they're aware of it. And I, I think it's great that you and the folks at Thomas are pushing this idea, like it has to happen. It's got to happen in a connected way. And you've got to have a sense of urgency to it. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Bob. And look, I, if I've got time for one more uh, observation, I would make connected to this. Um, it was fascinating to me when we were uh, spending some time with the folks uh, involved in legislation and the White House folks. And there was a part of me who was wondering, hey, I think what we're doing is great. I think our data is really interesting. But boy, from them hearing a presentation on the data to we're sitting in the White House was a, a, a four week you know, span. I'm thinking, man, this happened really fast. Well, privately, what several of them said to me is, you know, a lot of what they get as data, say you're the Department of Commerce or the Small Business Administration, is a survey instrument from a trade association that's a trailing indicator, and it's been stepped on based on the interest of a particular trade association. I'm not bad-mouthing trade associations, but that's the reality of a lot of the data feeds that they get. And it's a necessary component. They, they deal with those types of things. But I think it relates to what you and I are talking about. I think this is a market that needs more real-time data on what are customers doing? What are they looking for? How do they want to interact with the supplier today? And I think um, even our own government needs some help in understanding that. So if they're there to ser serve, you know, if those two associations are uh, not associations, but organizations are there to serve U.S. manufacturers, if they're relying on survey instrument data that trails a, a marketplace and perhaps is too narrow of a sliver and doesn't really focus on what you're describing there, what are customers looking at, good, bad, or indifferent? May not all be good news, but at least understanding that and as close to real time as possible, I, I, think, is, I, I think it's how all companies have to operate today. But certainly in the industrial space, we, uh, we believe that's the direction they have to go. Yeah. Tony, fascinating stuff. Um, Thanks for that point. And I hope in future episodes, to the degree that it's possible for you, if you want to share some other insights about your ongoing conversations with some of those folks there and how you're, you and the- Look forward to it. Yeah. And Tony, before we go to tell people uh, if they want to find out more about Thomas, where, what's the website? Where do they go? Great. You can go to www.thomasnet.com. And that's our main platform. And you can see all the products and services that we offer the industrial marketplace there. I'd also highly recommend we have a uh, free uh, daily email newsletter. It's called the Thomas Industry Update. And uh, in that, uh, we once a week produce what are the top trends in demand. So there's a brief video overview, and I think we've now produced some 80 of those uh, so that come out on a regular basis. So it's chock full of information. And again, it, it's easy to find at thomasnet.com. Great, great. Well, Tony, this is a wonderful kickoff to uh, Up Off on Industry. Thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks a lot, Bob. Really appreciate it. Great. And folks, thanks to all of you out there for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we're looking at all facets of uh, the crazy digital revolution that's changing everything in the world. Thanks for spending your time with us. Please feel free to share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.